Hi everyone and welcome to our VOMA podcast presented by Dr. Debra Smith. My name is Dr. Hagiri. I'm occupational medicine physician working for Kaiser and I'm today's moderator. We have designed this podcast as a tool and a benefit for members to stay current on topics of interest to occupational and environmental medicine physicians. The VOMA members involved in planning this podcast have no relevant financial relationships to disclose and neither does the presenter. Now it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today. Dr. Deborah Smith is the COO, founder and medical director of Body Prime SPC, which is a new venture launched in 2020 to deliver lifestyle medicine-based self-education and consulting to guide individuals and businesses to engage in proactive health approaches to prevent and reverse disease. Dr. Smith's prior experience includes more than 20 years as a senior manager in health services for a large Northwest-based global manufacturer. While in the corporate world, Dr. Smith led the development and implementation of a highly successful enterprise-wide industrial athlete program. Currently, Dr. Smith works as an occupational health clinician and as a lifestyle medicine consultant in the senior living industry. Prior academic experience includes faculty appointment at the University of Kansas School of Medicine. Dr. Smith has completed a Master of Business Administration in Healthcare from George Washington University and is board certified in lifestyle medicine and internal medicine with more than 22 years in corporate occupational health management. So now, um, with permission from Dr. Smith, I would like to start the questions for this podcast. Uh, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here and the chance to speak with this uh, audience. And um, just to give a little bit of background on myself, to get rid of the elephant in the room, I uh, transitioned my gender from male to female in 2011 and actually came out in the corporate world in 2014. And my viewpoints are solely my own. Uh, they do skew towards focusing on things from more of a transgender part of the LGBTQ plus spectrum. And so um, just keeping that in mind, uh, I do not know all the answers, but I do have a unique perspective given my years and occupational health. So hopefully I uh, can impart some value here. And thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction. You're more than welcome. Okay, the first question is, how do you make sure our work environment is more inclusive in the LGBTQ plus population? Well, I, I think there's a, a number of ways to do that. And um, we have to realize that we're uh, dealing with a very uh, uh, multi-generational, uh, uh, multi-ethnic background uh, workforce and um, gender identity and uh, sexual preference 
or just one or several aspects of what makes up for a very complex interaction that we have between humans. And so I think when you take the time to ask people how to pronounce their name, what what is their uh, preferred name that they wish to be addressed by, um, when you uh, find out uh, enough of the medical history during the intake process where you can do adequate occupational care so you're not making assumptions. Um, you know, you can't look at a name nowadays and say, oh, that's male, that's female. You know, you just, I mean, in the office the other day, we had uh, a male by the name of Caitlin come through. And so you can't just look at a name and say, oh, that's, you know, and and you can't also make assumptions about gender identity at birth or gender, how they were assigned, uh, what gender they were assigned at birth, because if you transition early in life, there's not a lot of clues clinically that this person might have had a unique medical history. And so I think when we take the time to learn you know, how our patients and, and, and clients want to be addressed, uh, what's important to them, and, and educate them as to why we're asking certain questions. It's very important to know gender assigned at birth if you're doing occupational health exams, particularly cadmium. You want to know if someone was born with a prostate who now appears, you know, female. Um, and so I, I think when you incorporate all of that and also social determinants around, do you have trouble filling out forms? You don't have to ask, can you read? Uh, you know, they do that on the OSHA questionnaire for respirators, but, you know, just asking people, do you have trouble filling out forms is a nice way to ask, you know, maybe you've got uh, difficulty with uh, uh, written language or writing uh, out things. And a lot of individuals uh, across the socioeconomic spectrum can have difficulty filling out forms. And uh, I've seen people be reluctant for filing claims because they're hesitant from um, for a number of reasons. So kind of understanding the the whole person can kind of explain why they may or may not getting be getting better, being compliant with therapy, getting their medications, being willing to follow a workers' comp uh, claim, that sort of thing. So I think, I think if we have a very welcoming and inclusive approach, not just kind of what we've done traditionally, but kind of expanding it to, you know, what's important to you, what's your social situation. What's your preferred, um, how, how, what name do you want us to use for you? What's your uh, pronouns? Um, if we just collect that at the very beginning, then there's less likelihood that we're going to stumble or create awkward situations during, you know, the, the care delivery process. Fantastic, Dr. Smith. So the next question we are covering here is how do we ensure that urine drug screening policies are respectful of non-binary and trans employees? Well, I, I think the, the main question comes up in that most of the time you're going to have a private restroom, but if you've got a, a female to male a uh, person who's using a stand-to-pee device and they happen to have that in their pocket and they clean out their pocket because you're asked to clean out your pockets and that pops on the counter. 
uh, an uneducated or misinformed uh, collector might say, well, that's an attempt to adulterate. You're passing urine through a device. That's clearly an attempt to adulterate when it's really not an attempt to adulterate. And so uh, I, I think that's one area where, or with monitored exams, uh, I don't know that that happens very often, but if you're using a multi-stall restroom, the, the observer can be in the same restroom. And you know if someone sits to pee, that's a male, you kind of might think, well, that's kind of odd. Or if someone takes additional time, they're gonna say, oh, that might be an attempt to adulterate. So I think, uh, just with the collection process, there can be some issues, particularly with uh, stand-to-pee devices. I've not seen that in the literature. I've not seen it in the press. So maybe it just isn't happening. Uh, I haven't seen any cases of that come through yet. The other issue that comes up is with direct observed. If you're doing um, uh, DOT uh, exams, there is a subset of individuals that are mandated to be uh, observed collections. The observer is supposed to be the same gender as the person being observed, unless they're a medical professional, then you can use any gender uh, observer and you have to observe the urine, leave the body and go into the cup. And if, if, if you have an individual who has not had bottom surgery, and keep in mind that only maybe a third of all transgender individuals have had bottom surgery. Number of reasons for that. Uh, you have to live for a year in your um, new gender before they'll even consider it. You have to have multiple letters. Yeah. You have to have the money, the time to yeah. recover. And for uh, female to male, the... Uh, procedure is very invasive and not terribly effective. And so, uh, or if it is effective, it, it's a very long course and, and journey uh, for that to happen. And so if someone's got either um, atypical, I, I mean, uh, intersexed individual could be in this situation where they may be uncomfortable with someone observing them pee um, and the observer could be also uncomfortable and it could lead to a very adverse situation. Again, I've not seen in that any of that published in the press or any accounts or reports, um, but given that uh, drug use may be slightly higher in the LGBTQ plus populations because of the stress and socioeconomic issues that uh, that group is facing, uh, they also may be called out more to go for reasonable suspicion testing because, gee, there's just something odd with them, close quote. I have seen that in my own experience. Um, and, and so with directly observed, uh, there's no DOT uh, guidance on what to do, but probably the TSA approach and, and some of the um, drug collection associations. I, I think there's some good white papers out there right now that say just adopt the TSA approach. If someone's really hesitant to allow a direct observation and it's required, I think it's a reasonable question to say, is there an issue with the gender of the person that's observing you or something else? And we will be willing to work with you to find the gender of the person that you're comfortable with and just explaining the process rather than just saying, okay, they're, they're refusing, this is a refusal and check the box and, and call the DER and, and close the case. And so 
Um, I, I think there's a lot of potential issues with drug collection, given how many pre-employment and also if you're in safety sensitive work. Um, you know, I don't personally know there's a lot of uh, transgender people doing safety sensitive work, but um, if you are, you're subject to random testing and, um, and uh, hopefully um, you're given a private uh, restroom, DOT compliant, compliant private restroom, and there's not an issue if you've got to sit down. The real issue is if you're using a stand to pee device and it comes out of your pocket in front of the collector. I think that's going to be not interpreted well in large parts, swaths of the country. Very nice explanation, Dr. Smith. The next question is, what is the correct way to label medical records pre and post so it doesn't appear that records represent two individuals? Okay, so that that is an interesting uh, phraseology. Question. No, it's yeah. not. It's it isn't. It isn't. Um, obviously, we don't go back and edit. You know, take out pronouns and the narrative, subjective, the objective assessment. I mean, the record is what the record was. But we've had cases where, um, when I was responsible for hearing conservation, where we would have to send out records to audiologists for individuals being assessed. And the record could have been easily, there's just a single name on the top of the record or the face sheet. And in this particular case, they wrote both names and kind of made a big deal out of it saying, hey, this is the same person, two different names. And the individual said that the audiologist was rather um, difficult. Um, and they blamed the fact that we kind of pointed out, hey, they're trans. So if you can send out old results that are not labeled with dead names and you can do it without modifying the original record, I would say, please do so. Uh, we also have to explain to uh, transgender individuals, most of us understand this after a while, that there is a lot of records out there that are never, ever going to get modified with you know, new names or new, I mean, my school records, my transcripts have new names, my, a lot of things do, but, um, you know, your dead name comes up all the time and credit, credit reports and all kinds of places. And so, and I think the medical record being somewhat synchrosanct and, and the fact that we don't go back and white out pronouns and white out names and write out medical findings, that would not be medically appropriate. But if it's just a, a test record without any other identifying information, or if there's a way not to include the dead name with that record, and you know it's the right individual, same date of birth, and you don't have to point out a dead name in releasing records, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. Because um, there are um, some specialists that seem to have issues in some parts of the country um, with individuals that are transgender. And, you know, if the person does not want to be outed and for, you know, audiology evaluation, I, I don't know that knowing sex at birth is really that important. I can't think of a reason uh, for like hearing conservation. Um, you know, age correction. I, I can't think of a reason why that would be important. So I, I, I think there's a way to respectfully 
transmit records without putting all over the face sheet. Hey, there's two different names associated with this count. Um, kind of like what happens when I go in to get um, uh, background checks on myself. If I'm starting a new job, it's going to pop up that I've got, quote, fraudulent social security record, close quote. And there's really no reason for that to pop up, but it does all the time just because I have a name change. And you think, well, you know, uh, people get married have name changes all the time, but apparently uh, for people that change their first name, that's a big deal with social security. And I've never been able to figure out why. So if we can be a little more respectful about, you know, we, we, we don't have to declare it on the face sheet if it's not relevant um that that you know if we're having to send records if people want to pick up their own records and what they do with them i guess we really don't control that but you know i'm not advocating we go back and have some ai tool go through and modify digital records i mean maybe that's going to be mandated someday but right now um we've had some cases where i i think we were trying to be well-intentioned in sending out some records when we really didn't need to be quite that thorough on, oh, by the way, this, the, the name was different for this set, but now it's different for this set, but it's the same person. Well, yeah, they're the same person. Why do we need to point that out? Great. So we have one more question at the end of this podcast to cover, and that is where can we go to learn more and obtain additional references and support for health and wellness in the workplace? Well, I, I think there's a number of places you can go. If you, if you need more information on drug collection, observed drug collection, uh, some of the associations, if you just type in and Google that, um, try to remember the name of the association right now, but you'll find it, it's pretty easy. Uh, there's very, very few um, occupational or scientific journals and, and uh, studies. So they're pretty easy to find also if you need to look up, you know, which laboratory values should be cor corrected or, um, you know, um, can you use uh, uh, you know, the, the current uh uh, gender, or do you need to use birth gender for laboratory? Those those are pretty easy to, to look up. I think if you've got an LGBTQ person that's traveling and, and, and you're, you're, there's issues with um, where homosexuality or being transgender might be criminalized, uh, those resources include U.S. Department of State, International SOS. That's a huge uh, medical um, uh, global uh, resource for corporations, ILGTA World and Harvard GSS are really good information if you've got individuals that need to travel globally to determine A, is it safe? B, should they, should they take any sort of uh, computer or, or phone with them that may have information that is uh, going to out them? Um, in order, uh, let's see, other resources. I think for clinical guidelines, I would probably, uh, there's a really nice uh, University of Washington website that talks about what you can do to make things more welcoming. Uh, do ask, do tell.org. Again, that's D O A S K D O T E L L.org. Um, 
can help make your practice more LGBTQ welcoming and um, and if there's questions, you're certainly welcome to reach out to me and I will try to uh, help you given my background and experience. Um, but the interesting thing was you will not be overwhelmed with research articles. So you'll get three or four top hits. And so it's pretty easy to zero in on uh, scientific literature. And I think the do ask, do tell was .org was the best resource I found for helping to make uh, practices more welcoming. I'm looking to see if I can find that other address real quick here. So yeah, that's that's those are the best resources. Um, oh yeah, here it is. Unfortunately, it's a website. Um, it's uh, uh, uwmedicine.org. Uh, 10 tips for working with transgender patients, but that also, those tips also work well for working with uh, individuals of diverse backgrounds and experiences and things that they're covering for and socioeconomic factors for health. And so I, you know, obviously I, I think the trans population is the canary in the coal mine right now in that they're most under attack most maligned, most likely to try to be hiding in the woodwork, least likely to, you know, there's some individuals that uh, are very prominent and out uh, on purpose, but I think a lot of us are just fearful and um, we're not gonna divulge it unless you, you ask us. And I think there's a respectful way to ask and a time to ask. Um, at the very start of the intake process, um, my medical assistants would often say, hey, there's a discordance between the name and the pronouns. They'd point it out and I would do fine for that clinical encounter. If my medical assistants didn't give me a heads up, I would sometimes stumble because things were discordant and I wasn't sure of you know, kind of where I was. And the more you stumble, the worse foot in the mouth you get. So I, I think just being cognizant that the world is a little more complex, names are a little bit more challenging, asking people how they want to be addressed, asking people, um, you know, some names are, are difficult to pronounce if, 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 it's, uh, if it's not in your native uh, language. And so uh, just being polite, cognizant, respectful, empathic, you know, I think the world needs more of that. And if there's one thing I could say for occupational medicine, you know, if we're not telling our injured employees, gee, I'm, I'm sorry that happened to you, but I'm definitely going to get you better or we're going to work together on this. Sometimes the only kind words they hear are from the attorney. <laughs> and so, you know, there's a lot of things that we can do to make occupational medicine more patient-centered. They still look to us to have the information, the answers. Obviously, we're not going to say, well, gee, I, you know, there's three different things we can do. I'll let you pick from them. You know, they're not looking for that level of collaboration, but I, I think they are looking for us to be a little more empathic and understanding. And it's a difficult world right now for a lot of different uh, different reasons. And so I think occupational medicine has always been at the forefront of social change. And I think it's a position to obviously be central in that role uh, in the intersection of uh, work and health and life. 
thanks so much. Uh, so uh, we finished our podcast questions for today. Uh, and uh, on behalf of WOMA, I would like to sincerely thank our speaker, Dr. Smith, for her time and effort as well. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here and uh, appreciate the, uh, the, the time with everyone.